right, so Joshua chapter 1, and I've got a little bit of an intro, but I'm not going to like spend a lot of time on it because I just handed it out to you. So you can read it, um, particularly if you look at the outline, you can see there um, they come in, the entrance into the land is chapters 1 through 5, and then chapters 5 of verse 13 through chapter 12 um, is all about the conquest. And then you have the division of the land in chapters 13 through 21 and obedience. And there, there's, it's broken down um, in greater detail. There's also an article um, in that brochure um, that relates to the timing. Um, and this is a big debate between those who believe the Bible um, should be taken literally when it addresses matters like this. And those who would say that it doesn't matter. I, I believe that it matters. I, I believe it matters significantly. And that article um, is going to touch a lot of the dating issues. Now, if you were here last week, um, we talked a lot about that, of Mount Ebal and the cursed tablet and the things that they found in the dating, showing that the conquest actually was happening and that there are um, you know, archaeological artifacts that are dated to that time frame and are clearly um, Israel worship uh, uh, Sites and um, items that an Israelite would have had. So you can go back and listen to that. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to go through some of the dating of that right now. Um, let me just put it this way. The conquest is beginning around 1406 B.C. They left Egypt in 1446 B.C. and they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. So that brings you, of course, if you're going B.C., you're, you're, you're counting down. Um, it brings you to 1406 B.C., and so that's where, where I would put chapter 1 is 1406 B.C. Um, what we find here is that this is uh, the first book in the historical section of the Old Testament. And what is it doing? Well, it's, 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 it's showing the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham, that he would be a great nation and that he would have many descendants, and that they would inherit the land that he walked upon and that, that he saw. And of course, all that Abraham ever owned as a piece of land was what? His grave. Yeah, the place where the burial plot, that's all he ever owned. So he had this faith that God was going to give it to him. And some 400 years elapsed, and now in the book of Joshua, you see that fulfillment coming to pass. And so we can learn patience and faith through those that have gone before us, right? That 400 years is a long time to wait for that promise. And the Lord, you know, of course, we look at it, it's like, well, I'm running out of time. The Lord's like, yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I've got things worked out. So it's an interesting perspective. Of course, we read this and we're not worried about the 400 years. All we're worried about is, look, God is faithful. And we compress that timeline down and we see the faithfulness of God. And that 400 years is not a bother to us because we're not the ones living out the 400 years, right? Um, and I think that's a lesson for us to just keep in, in mind what is the most important. Well, Joshua is the leader, and it is Joshua and Caleb who were among the 12 spies that had come into the land 40 years earlier and said that it was a good land. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go in, let's get it. But the other 10 spies said, no way. There are giants in the land, not metaphorical ones, literal ones. And there are cities whose um, walls are up to heaven. And we'll talk more about that in our study next week at Jericho. So now here they are 40 years later, only Joshua and Caleb of the older generation are entering in. Everybody else, including 
Miriam, Moses, and Aaron, they are not coming into the land. But Joshua is. And there's a lot of emphasis on not making the same mistake as before. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But God is faithful. And the, the time frame for um, this book is about five years. So the conquest is, um, you know, like f- about five years or so long. And um, what we're going to find is that the conquest of this land is going to take place in, in three major um, military campaigns. So you got a map there. We can show you exactly where they, they take place um, on, on you got one up in the north, the northern campaign. Um, Hazor, or Hazar, um, is one of the cities that is up there. Then you have the central campaign, which is the one we are most familiar with because that's the one where Jericho happens. And this is where they enter the land, is in the center. And then the southern campaign um, in cities like Hebron, Lachish, uh, Gibeon, those, that's the southern. And so these are the three main battles that they're going to fight, and we'll follow those as we go through. But what we're going to see is at the end of the book of Joshua, although they had inherited much of the land, they have not inherited all of the land, which is going to become problematic in the coming generations. But it also was an opportunity for those next generations to still have something to fight for, to still have something to step out into and say, well, if they had gone in before us and they had taken this much land, then we can go ahead and finish this. But that's not what is going to happen, unfortunately. And it's going to become a snare to them. And they're not going to enter into the land. Now, one of the major questions, and I've tried to hit this several times as we've gone through um, Exodus and Numbers and um, Deuteronomy, and now here we are in Joshua. And, and that is this question that is, is God just to have um, attacked these nations and have completely annihilated them? Because we're going to often hear that man, woman, child, and animal should, and, and then the city should be burned. And so we hear this, and that what happens in all of our hearts and minds is the question like, wow, that seems harsh. And, and it's, it's just is what it is. And it is hard justice. I wouldn't use the word harsh because I think God is just. Uh, so how do we answer that? And this is a major, major um, accusation that people will want to uh, throw at Christians, throw at you, your children, or if you go to a secular college or you get into conversations, why would God do this? This is genocide, this is not right, and this is not just. So how do we respond to this question of what about this wiping out of these uh, little city-states throughout the land of Canaan? Isn't this a revelation that God of Israel is unjust? Well, let's answer it Quickly, uh, no. <laughs> no, that is not the case. Revelation 15, 3. The book of Revelation is a book that's dealing with a lot of what? Judgment. Interesting, isn't it? There's a lot. Jesus, which by the way, Joshua and Jesus is the same name. Um, Jesus is coming back and he's going to conquer the earth and he's going to set up a kingdom. So in Revelation 15, 3, it says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, 
O King of the saints. So, no, God is just and God is true. And um, if we fail to see that, um, it may be because we don't have all of the information. It may be because we have a, a, a limited amount of faith. And we need to be stretched in that and understand that the Lord is not capricious. He is not like that. And, and some of the ways in which we can go beyond just saying no and then pointing to another scripture that says God is just is to, is to break this down a little bit. If you go back 400 years earlier or so into Genesis 15, 16, God says that he would wait till the Amorites, that's everybody that was on that map, okay? Um, and the Amorites were breaking, broke down into you know, seven other nations. So there is um, these Amorites, they are going to um, be given a span of about 400 years to repent. That's about the time that Israel was down in the land of Egypt. And so when they came out, um, the Amorites, all right, they have not repented, and they are still doing their wicked and evil deeds. God gave them 400 years. Let me ask you, if somebody does the same thing to you four times in one hour and says they're sorry, are you going to be patient? What if they did it 40 times? What if they did it 400 times? Oh, oh so, so suddenly now say, like, well, 400 times. God gave them 400 years. Day and night, they walked in wickedness against the Lord. But God gave them space to repent, and they chose to say, no, thank you. We will continue in our wickedness. So why? What are some of the things they were doing? Well, uh, Genesis chapter 19, which is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, speaking about the people of this land, they were oppressive people. They were wicked people. They were evil people. They took advantage of people. Obviously, we see their, uh, the homosexual rape that they wanted to impose upon the angels of the Lord. Um, but they also were just terrible people. And they were wicked. They were oppressive people. So this is one thing. Secondly, they worshipped false gods. They worshipped other deities. And in the worship of these um, other deities, they would often engage in religious prostitution. Judges 2.17, Jeremiah 7.9, Amos 2.7 makes reference to this. They also, number four, they mutilated their bodies in worship of their gods. And so 1 Kings 18.28, we see Elijah encountering the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and they're cutting themselves. And then probably most grievous of all is that they sacrificed their children Leviticus 18, 21, 2 Kings 23, 10, Jeremiah 19, verses 4 and 5. It talks about the sacrificing of children. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce this guy's name. I don't really, but that's okay, he's dead. So, but is Clitarchos, uh, a writer from 300 BC, and what he writes and describes is the worship of the Canaanite gods. And what he says about this, so like the god of Molech or Baal Melech, um, that they would um, hollow out metal idols and then they would fill it with flaming coals until it was red hot, then laying the infant on the sizzling outstretched arms of an idol, it would be offered up and it would die. Other accounts say to drown out the screams of the child, there would be loud chanting and beating of drums. Like, I man, did you really need to say that? 
Um, I think I did actually need to say that because of the hard accusation that's coming against it. So when somebody in, um, not I think in an honest question or sincere discussion, I'm happy to have that, but in kind of in a snarky way, finger in the face of God, trying to mock our faith says, you know, why would a God do that? Troy Warner would probably say, well, I didn't know you were in support of child sacrifice. I guess I did not. To me, that's a bad thing. Maybe to you it's okay, but it's not to me. So when they, get, when they want to get like that, this is a response that you can, you can say. It's like, this is how they were killed. Are you in support of this? Are you in support of, of you know, a town coming out to rape innocent people? I mean, what is it that you're actually for and against? Because God was against these things and so as you read through the conquest, we're going to read about every man, woman, and child. And we say, well, why the children? I think you'll have to ask God when you get to heaven about that one. I don't know that I have a great answer for it, but I, I'm not going to forsake what I know about God as to be loving, kind, just, and sending his son to die for my sins. And I'm not going to forsake that which I know him to be as just and merciful for one line of scripture that I can't quite understand and I don't have all the information for. So I'll just, I'll chalk that up to, I don't know exactly, but I know who was doing this. And I have plenty of confidence in the who. I maybe don't know the why, but I got plenty of confidence in the who. So um, that, that's kind of been a, a bit of a long introduction but hopefully it will serve us well as we go through these uh, coming weeks of study in the book of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 1, we see here in this chapter that Joshua is commanded to be courageous. So let's begin reading at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. There's got to be a little bit of excitement there, right? It's like, finally, after all these years, they are, they're doing it. They're walking right into the, the reception of this promise, the Abrahamic covenant. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given you, as I said. So if you've been with us last week, can you just picture that kind of footprint encampment that they have found throughout the land of Israel? And this is kind of the idea. Like, there's the sole of your foot, and then they would make an encampment that looked like a footprint um, from the, an aerial point of view. So verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon... As far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, so the Mediterranean Sea, so river Euphrates to the east, to the west you have the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. Ask yourself this question. What difference does God being with you make in your everyday life? Now listen, I mean, theologically we say, oh, it's big, got it. You got A, you got an A on that one. But now let's, let's just kind of peel it back. When you have bad news in your life, when things are not being accomplished the way you thought they were, the timing is off, how do you feel when somebody says to you, hey, the Lord is with you? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, don't tell me that. Or is it, oh, the Lord is with me. Of course, what am I worried about? What am I fretting about? 
the presence of the Lord is with me. And Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So the Lord has given us this, this promise as well. So verse uh, six says, be strong and of good courage for this people, to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. So there's no space for fear here, Joshua. The only thing that you can do is be strong and courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. I think of Psalm 1 here. That you may observe to do all are to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So it would be, I think, a pretty safe conclusion that there was maybe some trepidation in Joshua's heart and mind, but to just pump the brakes on that for just a second, this could just as equally be last time you guys got scared. 40 years ago, you got scared when you were supposed to come into the land. Now, Joshua didn't. So now here's 40 years. And it's like, now, you know your history. You know the mistakes you've made. Don't make the same mistake again. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't have any other uh, emotion in your heart or in your life. Have no other resolution other than strong, courageous belief that I'm going to do everything that I said to do. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to make certain that you obey my word completely. Because when you do that, I will make you prosperous. Remember Mount Ebal, the curses, Mount Gerizim, the blessings. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to have consequences, curses. You're going to have judgment upon you. So if you obey my word, Joshua, you're going to be very prosperous in this task that I've given to you um, to, to go out. So be strong and courageous. The Lord is on our side. Let's do the things that God has told us to do. Let's, let's identify what they are and then go in confidence, believing that God is going to prosper you. Obey the law. For them, the key of inheriting the land was their obedience, um, not their military prowess. And it's easy. Listen, it is, it is so easy for us to lose sight of this principle that we think it's like, what can I muster in my own strength? What can I put together? What are my skills? What are my abilities? And that's what's going to enable me to be successful in those things I place my hand upon. But you know, you can have incredible skills and talent, and yet you can be a mess spiritually and not be successful. I'm using the word successful synonymous with the term being faithful, fulfilling God's purposes. So obey the law, walk in it. It's amazing to me how many people can walk in open rebellion and disobedience against the Lord. They've got the Bible that tells them not to and that there'll be consequences if you disobey. Friends, family, spouses, parents, pastors, and brothers and sisters of the Lord are all warning them, and yet in their oh, disobedience, they begin to deal with the consequences and they want to get mad at God. 
It makes zero sense to get mad at God. Get mad at yourself. You're the one that has made those decisions. Now, don't be condemned. Repent, and then experience the grace of God. And then he says, not only are you to be strong and courageous and to obey, but you're to meditate on it. This should be something we're turning over in our heart and mind all the time is what does the word of God say? What does it require of me? What are the promises? What are the things that I should be um, about in my life? The way I live my life, the way I spend my time, it, are these things that God has told me to do or am I just running and doing my own thing? Because I can. Walk the narrow path. In verses 10 through 18... Um, Joshua gives the order for the people to prepare to enter the promised land. So in verses 10 and 11, um, he says, hey, get things ready to cross over. So get the provisions together. You know, get the tents and everything ready to go. Um, in verses 12 through 15, he gives a reminder uh, to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And Joshua says, all right, you're going to stay on the east side of the Jordan um, and you're going to inherit that land because you have a lot of cattle and the land is great up there. But you promised that you were going to come over and you were going to be with us as we fought to drive out the Canaanites. Don't forget that you have promised to do this. And, um, and so they agree that indeed they will do that. So they're going to go and fight. Now, as the Lord is going through and talking about this battle and to be strong and courageous, um, he, he tells them that they're going to be victorious, but he doesn't tell them how they're going to be victorious. Sound familiar to your life at all in your walk with the Lord? Sounds like my life. Here's this quote by Warren Wiersbe. God's people live on promises and not explanations. Write that down. That's good, isn't it? Because we want the explanation. I, I'm t like my wife's probably laughing at me right now. I mean, I, I like to figure it out. I know most, a lot of people do, but I may be more than the average person. I'm going to say more than anybody. I'm, I'm not saying that, but just like, I, I, I like the strategy. I like the, mm, I could do this and could do that. And I, I like this, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's not what my mind can conceive and plan. It's what God has told me to do. That's where I need to live. For we walk by faith, not by Sight. So, yes, write it down. God's people live on promises and not explanations. But how? Well, if God wants to tell you how, we can. But what if he doesn't tell you how? We still have to step out. In verses 16 through 18, the tribes, those two and a half tribes, um, agree, yes, we're going to fight with you. So let's read verse 16. So they answer Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord, your God, be with you as he was with Moses. So if you're a man of God, we're going to follow you. That's all we want. We just want you to be a man of God. If the Lord's with you, then we're, we're, we're right there with you. And so whoever rebels against your command, verse 18, and does not heed your words, and all that you command him shall be put to death, only be strong and of good courage. So there's that repeated theme of being strong and courageous because the Lord had promised that he was going to do this. It wasn't um, a look at yourself and your ability and feel good about your, you know, 
what you're facing. It's to feel good about God and what he's promised and what he's going to do. Well, as you move into chapter 2, um, we're going to have two spies view the promised land, which just that should, you know, I mean, even, you know, reading here, verse 1, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from, uh, the, from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you'll be like, uh-oh, there they go again. Last time they went and spied out the land, they spent 40 years wandering. You know, why are they doing this? Well, they clearly commander and general wants more information about what he's up against, and he especially wants them to go look at Jericho. Now, these two spies are going to come back, and they're not going to give a bad report. But let's go ahead and keep reading. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. I'm sure that was a difficult explanation when they got home uh, to their wives. Exactly tell me why we're there. Well, the, 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 it's not as bad as it sounds, although... Listen, it would have been a tough explanation. Ends and in, in, in that kind of behavior in the ancient world were often just, it was one and the same. So this was a place for them to get away. Um, nonetheless, they are not, they're not accused in Scripture for something wrong here. And we're actually going to see that they, um, there's a conversion that's going to take place among this Canaanite. So verse 2, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here uh, tonight, from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And this bothers a lot of people. It's like, well, she lied. Okay. So... This is the best explanation. Should have she just said, yes, they're here. But if you read the text, and you will keep going, you'll see that that would have resulted in her life not being spared. So what do you do when you have two competing moral um, you know, uh, options? I, I, either I turn these men over and they die, or I don't tell the guy who wants to kill them, and I lie. And I, I, when you are faced with situations like that, um, I'm not going to speak, I say, not the Lord, okay? So this is Troy's opinion, is like, I think you choose to walk down the road that is going to have the least moral consequence. It's going to have the least moral fallout. And so um, that's what we see her doing, and she is rewarded for it. So she's not condemned for this. If you hear that and say, okay, it's all right to lie, no, 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 that's not the point. Um, Lying so you don't have to deal with consequences of your actions is not, that's not the discussion here. Two people's lives were on the line. And so if you don't like that explanation, well, again, I say not the Lord. You can come up with your own, but it is there before us. And you can find the same kind of dilemma coming up in Scripture in other places. Um, so anyway, they, they, there they are. She is told to send them out. And she says, no, they're not here. In verse 5, and it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with stalks of flax, which she uh, laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, 
And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She, she uses the name Yahweh. They're like all capital letters for Lord. She says Yahweh. I know that Jehovah, Yahweh, has given you the land. This is yours. The, the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Do you remember Og was a giant whose bed was 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide, made of iron. It's a big boy. It's a big bed. And um, so he, they had killed giants um, on the eastern side of the Jordan. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So Rahab is, is having a moment, right? She is recognizing that there's an opportunity for her uh, to confess what she believes in the Lord, and, it, and it's quite amazing. So Rahab, uh, this is, Rebecca often says, you know, we always refer to Rahab the harlot, says, you know, when we, get, when we get up there in heaven, she goes, why did you keep calling me harlot? I was only, I stopped being a harlot for a long time. I mean, wouldn't you hate to be known as, you know, Troy the, and then have some, you know, sin attached to you for the rest of your life. Um, but anyways, that, that's how we, you know, we usually refer to as Rahab the harlot. Um, but how does the Bible refer to us? Well, Rahab, the mother of the Lord. She's the matriarchal line, right, of, the, of, of King David and of the Messiah. This is an interesting point for us to make if you can think back to, you know, this idea that God just indiscriminately was killing the Canaanites. The very first encounter with the Canaanite leads her into salvation and protection and into the company of the Israelites. Kind of interesting, isn't it? It's, it's neat. But Matthew 1.5, Hebrews 11.31, both refer to Rahab as uh, being in the genealogy in Matthew and in Hebrews that she was a woman of faith. Again, in there, uh, verse 31, it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. So it's commending her for how she handled this situation. But she acknowledges that their God is the one true God. He's you know, he parted the Red Sea. You had victory over Sihon. You had victory over Og. We have seen your works, and we tremble at your God. And I know that he is the true God of heaven, and that he is the true God of earth. And so um, they make this deal to protect. Now, what she does tell them to do is that when they leave that they should run up into the mountains. So, um, you know, don't go running out uh, towards the Jordan. So if the geography would be this, you'd have the city of Jericho, 
And then to the east, you'd have the Jordan River, and you'd go up into Moab, modern-day Jordan. But if you come to the west, you immediately go up into the Judean wilderness mountains, which would take you up, if you kept on going, up into um, Jerusalem. So they're, they're really close by. I mean, I know that if you're just reading this, you've never been there before, you don't have a sense of it, but, um, you know, it's just, you're looking at, when you're in Jericho, ancient Jericho, I mean, the mountains are just a, a short dash away. And here's a picture of what those uh, mountains actually look like. I mean, it's, it's rugged. Um, and so this is where they were to go and hide. Now, it was going the exact opposite direction of where they needed to go. So they're eventually going to have to come out of that. But um, that's where they were going to hide. This is the wilderness that Jesus went out into when he was tempted. Um, so they escape into the hill country and um, they get away. Now, there's a comparison that um, uh, Daniel Hayes and Scott Duvall uh, put together in um, one of their handbooks. And I'm just, I'm going to go back, back and forth between Rahab, who we've just talked about, chapter 2, and in Joshua 7, Achan. Do you know who Achan is? He's an Israelite that's going to take some spoil and he is going to be judged for it. And so what they've done is they've taken a Canaanite and they've taken an Israelite and they've put them in comparison. Some of these are very obvious. You have a woman and a man. She's a Canaanite but fears the Lord. He is an Israelite but does not fear the Lord. A, a prostitute, not respectable, he's respectable. She should have perished but survives. He should have survived but he perishes. Her nation Jericho perishes. His nation Israel prospers. She hides the spies from the king. He hides the loot from Joshua and the Lord. That's a pretty cool little comparison there, isn't it? She hides the spies in her house. He hides the loot in his tent. She hides the spies on the roof. He hides the loot in the ground. Her house survives. His tent perishes. The cattle, sheep, and donkeys of her city, Jericho, perish. His cattle, sheep, and donkeys perish like those in Jericho. She obeyed um, indirect revelation from the Lord. He disobeyed a direct revelation from the Lord. She lives like the Israelites. He dies like the Canaanites. So what's the point? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. So it's just interesting to compare people. But I think the point that I want us to see is that um, this came down to a matter of, do you have faith in God? Now, not what is your ethnicity? Right Now, it just so happens that those that had the most faith in God were the Israelites, and those that had the least amount of faith were the Canaanites. That was the reality of what was going on on the ground. So these men, um, oh, let's keep reading this account there in chapter 2. Uh, we'll pick up uh, at verse 14 of chapter 2. So the men answered her, our lives for your lives. If none, of you, if, if none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall and she dwelt on the wall. We're going to talk more about that in, when we talk about the destruction of Jericho. But just a little note there. And she said to them, 
get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, uh, we will be blameless of this oath of ours, uh, of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, mother, your brothers, and all your household into your own home. And if you go out, well, it's on your own. If you die out in the road, in, in the city, that's on you. Stay inside this house. And so we move on down to verse 23. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So big difference between the report of uh, the 12 and these two. It is interesting, just the math, Two gave a good report. And when Joshua sends people out, he just sends two of them. I don't know what you do with that. It's just interesting, okay? So uh, that, that's kind of where we are, chapter two. They've made it into land. They've spied out the land. They've met Rahab. They've come into the city of Jericho. Now into chapter three, they're going to um, come across, and they're going to cross the Jordan River. It's going to be a miraculous parting that takes place like the Red Sea. So then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the time, uh, uh, three days that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after. So the, the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of Yahweh, when you see that, you follow the presence of the Lord. That's what you set your eyes on. He says, verse 4, but you should have space between you 2,000 cubits or about 3,000 feet. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go, for you've not passed this way before. So why do they have to keep a distance? Well, it specifically states here in the text that, I mean, there's a large company of them. If they get too close up on it, they're, you know, they're not going to be able to have the ability of distance and be able to look at it because it's something small. So it's like give space so you know where it's going to go. Because if it turns one way or the other way and you have this whole mass and you can just imagine how you get a log jam. So give some distance. That's just a practical thing. But I also think that, it, again, is this point that we've seen throughout, um, you know, the Mosaic law is that you can only come so close to the presence of the Lord. Like at Mount Sinai, they put up the barriers and they said, don't touch the mountain lest you die. And so it's the same idea. The language of, uh, of the Old Covenant is come, but not that close. <laughs> but the language of the New Testament is come near. We just sang that song, right? That talked about coming behind the veil. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, is in the holiest. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. So the veil separated the compartments, but is saying that veil is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So while there is that practical piece of keeping the distance, there is still, I believe, that communication of you can come close, but not that close. But for us, the invitation is come all the way in. Come all the way in. Touch the ark, right? Experience the presence of the Lord. And this is the invitation. Now, what they're going to be told to do next is they needed to um, sanctify themselves. Um, so, verse 7, and then Joshua, said, uh, the Lord said, Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And again, just as the mountains were really close to Jericho, the Jordan is super close to Jericho. Not as close as the mountains are, but it's still just, it's a short little, um, you know, uh, journey. Um, so I'm sure these nations are watching this movement that's taking place. Uh, verse 10, and Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will uh, without fail, drive out before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gerkeshites, and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, they will stand, uh, they shall be as a heap. So it was when the people set out from uh, their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the harvest time, this will be another interesting note when we get to Jericho, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap uh, very far away at, at Adam. The city is beside Zeraton. So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, uh, Dead Sea, were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho, so right in front of Jericho. And the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So it's, it's like another Red Sea parting, but it's mini. It's a mini parting, right? It's not as dramatic as the Red Sea, but the Lord told Moses, I told Joshua, hey, people are going to know that I'm with you, which this, this parting of the Jordan would have been like, this is like the Red Sea. Our parents talked about this. Now we get to see it. And they got to walk across on dry ground. What an encouragement. What a faith builder this would have been for them. So the Lord is saying, I'm with you, Joshua. Now we put up that, this next slide. Um, you gotta, and it might be a little difficult to see, but you can see that blue line coming down. That's the Jordan River. And where that red circle is, that is where they think um, Adam or Adam would have been where the water stops. So they stopped up north, and then, of course, then you just have the, the water that was below that stoppage. It just kept on running, 
And then as it passed by where they were near um, uh, Gilgal across from Jericho, as it passed by um, and got you know, dry, then they were able to do this. So this was a literal step of faith, wasn't it? Step out into the water. We use this and we often it's like it's a step of faith. But this was a, a, a physical step. And as they stepped, they put their foot into the water and immediately the water dried up. Now they're holding the Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah, they're representing the presence of God in their midst. And, and it's like, well, I don't want to fail. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want this thing to, to topple over. And I wonder how many have said, I don't want to step out and do what you've asked me to do, Lord, because I don't want to mess up your stuff. I think a lot of us say that. I think a lot of us are afraid to step out into something he's calling us to do. Because, I mean, we, we recognize this is holy. This is right. This is true. And I want to mess it up. Well, that, that, those are all good conclusions to come to. But if your next line is, therefore, I'm going to be disobedient to what you're telling me to do. This is not good. So you can say all of those things. You, you know, you're holy, you're true. This is a good thing. I, want to, I don't want to make any mistakes. I don't want to mess it up. Therefore, Lord, help me as I step out. So these men had the courage, and indeed, they stepped out, and the, the Jordan dried up, and they were able to walk across on dry ground. Now, into chapter 4, um, they're going to take some stones of remembrance. So while they're in there, um, they're going to be reminded of the power and the presence of God in their midst, and they are commanded to take um, stones, 12 of them, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are to stack them up. They are to set up a memorial. Um, and so that's what you see in verses 1 through 11. They're going to do this. Um, and then you see in verses 12, and 13, there's uh, 40,000 um, that are coming over of um, uh, you know, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And so they're, they're a part of those that are crossing over as well. So they are included in this. And this is, I think, so significant because this is going to stand for a while. Right? They're going to pull it out. They're going to they're stand up these stones. Of course, they're not there today. But all of us need to have these moments in when we have seen God do a work and we need to set up these, these memorials in our heart, in our mind, and in the conversation and in the, in the memory of our children and to, to be able to talk about it and to be able to communicate, hey, your mom and dad, you know, we had this thing that we were standing in front of and we didn't know what was going to happen and we prayed and we sought the Lord and this is what he told us to do and when we did it, we stepped out and the Lord showed up. The river dried up and, and you create these moments of remembrance that are helpful for the next generations. Now they, they experienced it but in the coming generations they would have this as a reminder and what an encouragement it would have been for all of them. Um, let's see, let's move on down to where do I want to go here. Let's pick up, let's pick up around verse 18. It says, And it came to pass, so I'm chapter 4, verse 18, when the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks. So it was a short-term uh, time miracle for just as long as they needed it, right? Now the people 
came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. They, came, they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So if we go back to that map again, um, I'll show you. Um, you can kind of see there's that blue line that goes across and there's that red star. That's, that's Jericho. And the little city that's just to the, to the east or to the right of that, that's Gilgal. So they've come across and they are, they are camped right on the doorstep of Jericho. This millions of people. Now, Jericho, I think it's maybe a seven or eight acre encampment. Don't quote me on that. Um, maybe a thousand people. Millions of people out there. 600,000 fighting men. I mean, this is, <laughs> you can imagine the fear that would have been in there. But they don't repent. Um, they don't repent. So, um, keep on reading here, verse 19. Now the people came from, up from the Jordan on the 10th day, the first month. They camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. So again, this, those stones of remembrance. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You know, as I think about why is there such an attempt to discount the conquest of the land. And why is it that so many people deny that Israel left Egypt and came into the promised land? I think it's because of verse 24. The last thing that Satan wants is for people to fear God. And if you read these accounts, they're breathtaking. They're amazing what God did. And you have, you just have to stand back and say, God does whatever he wants. He is almighty God. Who am I to stand against a God that can part the Red Sea or stop up the Jordan River and allow people to cross over on dry ground? I will fear him. And it's not just for that generation. What does it say? And that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I mean, everybody, for all time, that he will be feared. Well, that's not going to happen, unfortunately. Now, we're not going to get into chapter 5. We can go ahead and wrap it up here. But again, I just encourage you to think about those stones of remembrance. What is it that God has done in your life that you can, and you're like, well, I know he has. Well, do you know what they are? Do you know those moments where God showed up? You should be able to articulate them. You should talk them over as a family. You should tell them, these are our testimonies. You don't have to exaggerate it and make it a bragamony, but just, you know, just tell what God has done. It is an encouraging thing to hear. Now, Gilgal, as they, they come and they go across this place, it means to roll, um, to roll away. Um, it's interesting that it's at, cro at the cross of Jesus Christ where um, all of our shame, all of our guilt is rolled away. Now, they, listen, they, they come across and now for, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and living with the shame of their forefathers and what they had done. They cross over the Jordan. They come to Gilgal, and that is gone. That is rolled away. And, um, and this is what happens when we come to our Gilgal. When we come to the cross, that shame 
the embarrassment of what we have done and lived for is rolled away. Again, I think a lot of times this is what keeps people from coming to, to the Lord. It's like, my life is too messed up. I've done too many crazy things. I have brought too much shame. There's no way the Lord would receive me. There's no way he would bring me into his, his land and bring me into his promises and bring me into those things that he has planned for my life. And, you know, that is just not what the Bible says. That's what the enemy wants you to think so you won't come to him. Well, what is everybody in the, you know, the church? I mean, what is the church going to think about me and, you know, everything that was my life? You think Rahab the harlot is bad. Wait till you hear my story. What is the church going to do when they hear my life story? I'll tell you what the church is going to do. When you talk about passing from death to life, from darkness and immorality into righteousness, they're going to applaud and cheer. That's what they're going to do. They're going to celebrate. And I, I you know... Patty, we have this, this event coming up here in September with Patty Height, and we have um, her, you know, she's from out of Egypt ministries, and she has a great testimony of how the Lord has delivered her out of um, homosexuality, and she shares openly about her life, and um, please keep her in prayer um, as she prepares to, to come over here. Um, but you know one thing that she told us is that, and this, this was so encouraging, Rebecca was talking to her just the other night, she says, there is a lot of people that are coming out of the LGBT that are getting saved right now. That's, that's an awesome thing. And, and so you're clapping right now, but you need to clap when they sit down next to you too. And you need to be willing to, to share the love of Jesus Christ and welcome them into the family. And so um, uh, this is something that the Lord not only rolls away our shame of failure, and the time we're out there in the wilderness doing whatever, but he rolls away everybody's, and we should also celebrate. And where does it happen? It happens at the cross. Jesus bore that shame so we wouldn't have to. So pretty, pretty awesome story. We'll pick up next week in chapter 5, and um, that's the, um, the last chapter um, before we actually begin to get into the, the conquest, um, chapter 6. You may want to read that article um, if, you know, you can read it maybe next Wednesday or something like that and be fresh in your mind as we come in and talk about uh, how uh, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. So if you can call it him fighting, he did. But let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, um, I'm sure for each subsequent generation, the promise to Father Abraham must have seemed so distant and so far away. But Lord, you were faithful and true to your promises. And Lord, we want, to just, we want to just tell you that we have faith in you. We believe in you, Lord. We trust in you. And although it has been far more than 400 years, some 1,900 years, we have been waiting for the promise of your return, that you, our Joshua, will come back and rescue us and then establish your kingdom in this very same land, Lord, you're going to do this. Lord, we believe in you and we wait patiently. Lord, there are things in our life that make us want you to hurry. But Lord, ultimately we stand back and we just throw up our hands and say, you are God, you are Lord, and your timing and your ways are always the best. But Lord, give us faith, give us strength. May we be a people that steps out. May we be a people that allows the, the failure and the shame of past sins to be rolled away and covered by the blood of Jesus. Lord, thank you for the promise 
of um, not, not a land, but Lord, of, of spiritual blessings that you said would be ours in Christ Jesus. And we can testify, truly, the land flows with milk and honey in your son. Lord, we, are, we wouldn't want to live any other way. We wouldn't want any material possession in exchange for the, the spiritual blessings that we have received in your son, Jesus. So speak to our hearts, Lord. Remind us of your goodness in all your ways. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand.